Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and of course, whoever. Uh, So I've been striving to get back on schedule to the point where I'm releasing new content every weekend again. So in service to that goal, I thought I'd take it easy on myself and just focus on one news story this episode. That way I stand a more realistic chance of getting it out on time. And I chose this particular story because it's one that I really wanted to cover, but I nevertheless put it on the back burner because the last episode ended up being longer than planned. Uh, But anyway, enough with the preamble, let's get on with it. So the AHA, the American Humanist Association, stripped Richard Dawkins of his 1996 Humanist of the Year award. And this might not come as a surprise to some. Uh, I certainly don't think it came as a surprise to me. As a longtime admirer of Dawkins, whenever I hear he's embroiled in some kind of Twitter-related controversy, I just kind of shake my head and I'm like, oh, Richard, what'd you say this time, you know? Um, Because it seems like over the last few years, he's developed this habit of ruffling feathers on social media by saying things that people find inflammatory or politically incorrect. And I would find myself wondering, you know, has Richard Dawkins changed or has everyone else changed and people are just being overly sensitive, you know? But uh, now when I think about it, this behavior might not be that new. There was the whole Dear Muslima thing, and I think that goes all the way back to uh, 2011. Uh, Depressing how quickly time flies. If you're not familiar, there's a little thing called Elevator Gate. Rebecca Watson, an atheist blogger and podcaster, uh, she was actually one of the co-hosts or a regular on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, but she spoke on a panel at the 2011 World Atheist Convention, which I believe that year was held in uh, Dublin, Ireland. And after the panel, some of the speakers and audience members went to the hotel bar for drinks. Uh, From there, around 4 a.m. as the story goes, Rebecca Watson calls it a night and heads for the elevator. A guy from the group whom she supposedly hadn't interacted with earlier follows her onto the elevator and I believe, uh, you know, once it's actually in motion and she has nowhere to go, asks her if she wants to go to his room for coffee. And so after she returns home from the conference, she publishes a vlog or video about the incident. And I think this is a quote from the video. I was a single woman in a foreign country at 4 a.m. in a hotel elevator with you, just you. And don't invite me back to your hotel room right after I have finished talking about how it creeps me out and makes me uncomfortable when men sexualize me in that manner. And to offer some additional context, I think when Watson was speaking at the conference, she supposedly discussed how, as a woman, she felt like she had been quote-unquote sexualized within the atheist community. But yeah, this incident went on to be uh, irreverently referred to as Elevator Gate. And there were a number of people in the atheist-slash-skeptic community who thought it was, you know, much ado about nothing. Including Richard Dawkins, of course, which is why I brought this up. And I believe Dawkins was actually at the same conference and may have even been on the same panel. But in response to Watson coming forward with this story, he published his aforementioned Dear Muslima letter. 
It was meant to be a satirical letter emphasizing uh, how trivial Watson's complaint and others like it are when contrasted with uh, the horrors suffered by women in certain parts of the Muslim world, you know, honor killings, genital mutilation, that kind of thing. And I have to admit, and it's not something I'm necessarily proud of, but I can remember getting kind of a chuckle out of the uh, Dear Muslima letter back in the day. But I like to think I now have kind of a more mature or empathetic take on it. I think it's a case where we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, you know, you can be concerned with the horrific and oppressive treatment of women in certain parts of the world, and at the same time also acknowledge that there's probably little things we can do here at home to be mindful of, you know, women's feelings and not make them feel uncomfortable. You know, it doesn't have to be either or. And I know guys might be thinking, you know, what the hell, I can't even ask somebody out now. Uh, but I think, and this is something in fairness to myself, I think I probably already understood this to some degree back then. But talking to female friends about it, you know, helped to really drive the point home or give me a kind of deeper insight into how women feel. And I think a couple of female listeners even reached out after I had covered this on the show back in the day. But I think for a lot of women, one of their biggest fears is being sexually assaulted, uh, to the point where I think it's not uncommon for women to even go out of their way to kind of strategize how they can safely get to their car after work or, you know, at night or that kind of thing. And it makes sense because in general, on average, you know, men are usually bigger, more physically intimidating, more likely to commit an act of sexual violence. And that's not me trying to throw men under the bus. I'm a man. And that just reminded me of uh, that Seinfeld episode. I'm a man. Uh, anyway, but, you know, if you put yourself in women's shoes, and there's a disturbing image, uh, it, it kind of makes sense that, you know, they might feel cautious or vulnerable in certain situations. So from one point of view, it might seem like, geez, all the guy did was ask a girl if she wanted to, you know, come back to his place for coffee. But from the woman's point of view, it might be like, holy shit, it's four in the morning and this guy I don't know just followed me into an elevator, you know? And when I think about it, I imagine it could be potentially awkward in a couple of ways. On the one hand, there's the concern for one's safety, a stranger following you onto, you know, an elevator, etc. But then also, what if someone asks you out on an elevator and you're not interested? After you turn them down, you're still stuck in this small space together. Even if it's only a minute, that's gonna seem like the world's longest elevator ride. And I know it probably doesn't seem fair, but I think sometimes how well a message will be received kind of depends on the messenger. And Rebecca Watson, and she might be the first person to admit this, has a personality that kind of puts some people off, shall we say. She can be a little abrasive or condescending. So I think some people probably didn't appreciate feeling like they were being lectured by Rebecca Watson. But, you know, whatever you might think about her, if she genuinely felt uncomfortable in that elevator, you know, she still has a right to express herself and vlog about her experience. But when I first started this podcast, I never thought I'd be talking about this kind of stuff. I just wanted to talk about whether or not there's a god and what happens when we die. Didn't think I'd be talking about elevator etiquette. Uh, but uh, that's the Dear Muslima story.
And so perhaps before I read the American Humanist Association's official statement, I'll quickly read the offending tweets first, uh, so you'll have a better idea of what they're referencing or referring to, and I'll return to the tweets again after and offer my, uh, my personal take. But here they are. So here's the first one, and it's dated April 10th. And uh, so once again, this is Richard Dawkins. In 2015, Rachel Dolezal, a, is that how you pronounce it? Anyway, Dolezal, a white chapter president of the NAACP, was vilified for identifying as black. Some men choose to identify as women, and some women choose to identify as men. You will be vilified if you deny that they literally are what they identify as. Then there's a, a space, and down below... Discuss. And then after receiving some blowback, he followed up with this tweet, and this is dated April 12th, so two days later, look at my math skills. Uh, and he says, I do not intend to disparage trans people. I see that my academic quote-unquote discuss question has been misconstrued as such, and I deplore this. It was also not my intent to ally in any way with Republican bigots in the U.S. now exploiting this issue. And so now I'll read the American Humanist Association's official statement. So they say, established in 1953, the Humanist of the Year Award is conferred annually, I almost said annually, by the American Humanist Association, AHA, recognizing the award E as an exemplar of humanist values. Communication of scientific concepts to the public is an important aspect of advancing the cause of humanism. Richard Dawkins was honored in 1996 by the AHA as Humanist of the Year for his significant contributions in this area. Regrettably, Richard Dawkins has over the past several years accumulated a history of making statements that use the guise of scientific discourse to demean marginalized groups, an approach antithetical, or, yeah, antithetical. I think that's right, right? Okay. To humanist values, his latest statement implies that the identities of transgender individuals are fraudulent while also simultaneously attacking black identity is one that can be assumed when convenient. His subsequent attempts at clarification are inadequate and convey neither sensitivity nor sincerity. Consequently, the AHA board has concluded that Richard Dawkins is no longer deserving of being honored by the AHA and has voted to withdraw effective immediately the 1996 Humanist of the Year Award. And so maybe there's something I'm not getting, but I kind of think the claim that he's attacking black identity is kind of hyperbolic, but I get why people are upset about the implications of his uh, remarks. By comparing trans people to Rachel Dolezal, he's implying that being trans is, you know, simply a matter of choice. And it's more than implied. He actually says some men choose to identify as women and some women choose to identify as men. And whether we're talking about gay people or trans people, my personal opinion is that um, there's most likely a strong genetic or biological component. And even if there wasn't, my opinion would still be that if two consenting adults want to engage in a same-sex relationship, let them. If someone identifies more with the sex or gender opposite of that which they were assigned at birth, 
let them, you know, allow them to embrace what they see as their true identity and know some measure of peace without being persecuted and treated like a freak or outcast. But I do, as I was saying, think there probably is a strong biological component. And I know this is anecdotal, but when I think of myself as a straight person, no one ever had to tell me to be interested in females. As early as elementary school, I would sometimes kind of feel butterflies when I'd lock eyes with a female classmate. Kind of these little uh, proto-crushes, maybe. Uh, you know, I was already finding myself attracted to actresses on TV, usually the more curvy ones, like uh, Suzanne Summers. you know, Old Three's Company reruns. Um... Am I really going to say this? I'm going to say it. Yeah, I, I must have this weird humiliation fetish. I can remember hiding under an afghan in the living room when I thought no one was looking and uh, rubbing one out to Chitara. It's probably one of my earliest childhood memories. <laughs> and by hiding under an afghan, I mean, you know, the blanket, not a person from Afghanistan. Probably didn't need to specify that. Uh, the show is going off the rails. And by that time, you know, still elementary school, I remember, uh, you know, fantasizing about my attractive female teachers. And then when girls my own age started to develop, I started to take, you know, an increased interest in them. Uh, man, I'm really making myself sound like a little pervert. Uh, but my point is, I think the human sex drive, uh, you know, and, and uh, sexual attraction are so strong, so seemingly hardwired. I can't imagine just arbitrarily choosing your sexual orientation. And in the spirit of intellectual honesty, I do like to mention that I think there probably can be some societal or environmental factors. You know, if you look back through history, there were some cultures where homosexuality was more prevalent. Uh, first thing that comes to mind for me is the classical world, ancient Greece and Rome. And I believe at least in the case of ancient Greece, maybe Rome too, they seem to have lacked our relatively modern or strict concept of sexual orientation. There wasn't that same heterosexual, homosexual divide. And to that point, I believe their vocabulary actually lacked corresponding terms for our heterosexual and homosexual. But even though there wasn't this same concept of sexual orientation, and I think this was the same with ancient Rome too, there was a stigma imposed on people who assumed the passive role in a sex act. So it didn't really seem to matter if you were, you know, with a man or a woman. What you were judged by was whether you were the passive or active partner. Uh, the act of penetrating was seen as masculine, while the act of being penetrated was seen as, you know, being more submissive or feminine. And as someone who's interested in ancient history, I always thought it was funny how, you know, the subject of gays serving in the military has been such a point of contention here in the U.S., when in some cases in the ancient world, homosexuality among soldiers was actually seen as promoting social cohesion or solidarity. For instance, there was the, uh, the renowned or legendary Sacred Band of Thebes, a group of 300 elite warriors, 150 pairs of male lovers. It was thought that their love for one another made them more willing to literally fight and die for one another, you know, making them better or more dedicated warriors. Um, they were viewed as being, you know, near invincible, but were eventually defeated, I believe, by uh, Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father. 
And speaking of Alexander, there's another great example. There's a man named Hyphestion, who is one of Alexander's officers, and uh, I believe uh, his close, arguably his closest friend. And it was also believed uh, that they were very close lovers. And I know I'm all over the place here, but I was trying to make the point that, yeah, perhaps to some degree, sexual orientation, etc., can be somewhat shaped by cultural or societal factors. And speaking of Dawkins, I forget if it was Dawkins or Hitchens, maybe both. But I remember uh, one of them talking about their experiences in boarding school and, you know, experimenting with homosexuality. And I think this is a, a known phenomenon. If you separate children by sex or gender, say in a boarding school, you know, environment, and I think this has been observed also with certain Muslim cultures too, where young boys are raised apart from girls, you see more same-sex experimentation, which makes sense in a way. If you have adolescents or teens who are, you know, discovering their sexuality, but there's no members of the opposite sex around, what do you think's going to happen? But damn, is every episode going to feature, you know, an unintentional deep dive into ancient history now? Uh, my apologies if you came here just for the Dawkins story and, you, you know, you got some guy talking about the sacred band of Thebes, etc. Uh, but despite any possible outside or environmental influences, I still think that at the end of the day, that being gay or trans is probably still more nature than nurture. And I think the science is starting to, you know, bear that out. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is that, like I said, even if this was all a matter of choice, which I think is kind of a, a ridiculous suggestion, I would still support gay and trans people. But the fact that it's, you know, not a matter of choice should hopefully, if you're an empathetic person, you know, should help drive home the point that these are people who deserve understanding, acceptance and support. Uh, but that initial Dawkins tweet before he backtracked a bit, it does make it seem like he's trying to liken trans people to Rachel Dolezal. And there may be some people thinking, and I'm sure this is part of the concern, that even if Dawkins did mean this as some kind of strange academic thought experiment, less tolerant types are probably going to see it and then use it as fodder to delegitimize trans people. And some might be thinking, you know, what's the difference? One identifies with another race, the other identifies with another sex or gender. Uh, this is just my layman's take or opinion, but I would say, you know, I can realistically see how something could happen in utero, maybe hormonally uh, or whatever, that could cause your brain to be wired a bit differently, where you end up with something like a female brain and a male body or vice versa. We know that, uh, you know, basically we all start off as female in the womb, even biological males, you know, fetuses with an XY chromosome. We all start off with the same undifferentiated genitalia and, you know, presenting as phenotypically female. And then eventually, I believe the Y chromosome is activated, you know, exposure to male sex hormones takes place, and the genitalia begins to develop into that of a male. At least, uh, I think something like that. And then, just so I don't have to issue a fresh round of corrections next week, I quickly did some Googling here. Here's an NCBI article. Um talking about fetuses begin development from the same starting point during early development the gonads uh, i believe the gonads are the uh, reproductive organs that produce the gametes the reproductive cells right 
I think so. But where was I? During early development, the gonads of the fetus remain undifferentiated. That is, all fetal genitalia are the same and are phenotypically female. Let's see, as an abstract here. Theories long held regarding female sexuality have been the Eve out of Adam's rib theory and Freud's well-known clitoral vaginal transfer theory. I feel like Dr. Ruth here. Because all embryos, male and female, start life by developing a combined clitoral penile tubercle, T-U-B-E-R-C-L-E. I have never encountered that word in my life until now. Uh, it seemed that all fetuses started as male, and by the third month, the females gave up trying to grow a penis, the clitoris being the remains. Geneticists have discovered that all human embryos start life as females, as do all embryos of mammals. At about the second month, the fetal tests, I wonder if that's supposed to be testes, but it says T-E-S-T-S, elaborate enough androgens to offset the maternal estrogens and maleness develops. Let's see, I'm looking at another article. In fact, the first five to six weeks of embryonic development are attributed to the X chromosome alone. And females grow from the embryo to fully developed through the influence of the X chromosome. When it comes to males, after that five or six week period, a gene called the SRY gene will activate on the Y chromosome and actively inhibit certain features of the X chromosome. It will also impose through genetic dominance male physiological traits, such as the testicles. This means that if the SRY gene is not activated, the female phenotype and physical appearance, which means clitoris instead of penis, will persist. And so, yeah, as I think it's suggesting here, you can actually have people who naturally present as female, and they don't find out till maybe puberty or later, maybe when they realize that they can't have children, that despite looking just as, you know, female as any other woman, they have an XY chromosome and often lack ovaries or have non-functioning um, gonads. Um, I think in some cases, a small percentage of these people I was reading recently can actually... Um, end up conceiving and giving birth. Probably not the ones that lack ovaries, I would imagine, but uh, still, it's pretty wild. Yeah, and so I think it's Swire syndrome. I think that's how it's pronounced, S-W-Y-E-R. Swire syndrome affects girls who have an XY chromosomal makeup, no ovaries, but functional female organs, including the uterus, fallopian tubes, and vagina. This is, this is like sex ed class. I'm starting to feel self-conscious. Uh, the exact incidence is unknown. One estimate placed the incidence at 1 in 80,000 births. And then good old Wikipedia says, uh, people with Swire syndrome are born with the appearance of a normal female in most anatomic respects, except that the child has non-functional gonads instead of ovaries or testes. Then I see down below, rarediseases.org. Because women with Swire syndrome lack ovaries, they are infertile. However, they can become pregnant through the implantation of donated eggs. A chief medical concern of women with Swire syndrome is an increased risk of developing cancer of the underdeveloped gonadal tissue. That's a bummer. So what a weird episode. And uh, I'm not saying that people with Swire syndrome or whatever. We, I actually found all this really interesting. I just feel kind of self-conscious as a podcast host that I've kind of digressed this far. You know what I mean? Like, 
like I said before, there might be uh, people who end up coming to this episode just because they want to hear kind of a quick summary of this uh, this Dawkins controversy. And then they have to listen to me going uh, all over the place. Um, but my point is kind of that, you know, there's all sorts of permutations and irregularities that can take place. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's that far-fetched to suggest or assume that you could have a person whose brain is more aligned with the sex opposite that which they've been assigned at birth. I believe there's actually been studies done that have found that the brains of transgender individuals seem to be more similar to those of the uh, biological sex or gender that they identify with. Yeah, and to that point, here's a summary from a 2018 study, or at least, uh, you know, this article was published in 2018 in the sources, the European Society of Endocrinology. Brain activity and structure in transgender adolescents more closely resembles the typical activation patterns of their desired gender. According to new research, the findings suggest that differences in brain function may occur early in development and that brain imaging may be a useful tool for earlier identification of transgenderism in young people. So once again, I could realistically see how transgenderism could be rooted in biology, at least partly, Whereas, as far as I know, there isn't any science suggesting that you could be biologically wired to identify as a different ethnicity. It's like, I'm Korean, but my brain structure makes me identify as a Jewish grandmother from Seattle. But <laughs> this is such a weird, meandering episode, and it probably seems like a very woke episode, too. And holy shit, do I hate the word woke. But actually, you know, the main reason I wanted to cover this story is because it involves Richard Dawkins, and this is essentially an atheist podcast. Well, a podcast for atheists, and say it with me, agnostics and whoever. And, uh, you know, as the show unfolded, I just tried to give my honest take on all this stuff. And then maybe before I close out the show, I'll read a couple more uh, Dawkins tweets that I found in Hemet Maida's article on this, you know, from the uh, Friendly Atheist. And this one dates back to 2015. And it says, and this almost makes me want to do the cringy caveman or Frankenstein voice, is trans woman a woman? Instead of is a trans woman a woman? Um, purely semantic. If you define by chromosomes, no. If by self-identification, yes. I call her, quote-unquote, she, out of courtesy. And so I imagine what people took issue with with this one is that um, maybe it comes across as kind of backhanded or, you know, patronizing. I guess the glaring question would be, uh, despite how it might make people feel, is what he's saying true? Uh, you know, if you don't have the proper chromosomes, are you not a woman? You know, what about the uh, the women with Swire syndrome who technically have an XY chromosome? Or what if there's, you know, some other mechanism by which you can essentially have a female brain um, in a male body? And I can't believe I'm going to read from yet another article. And this is actually on Forbes, but it's responding to someone's question about gender identity. And uh, the person answering the question is Sai Janani Gansen or Ganison. Um, 
He's a postdoctoral scholar. It looks like he specializes in biophysics and computational biology. But I thought what he had to say here was pretty interesting. Gender identity is very poorly understood, but based on a number of studies from the popular case of David Reimer, who had gender reassignment surgery as a child and was brought up as a female after a botched circumcision, and I've heard about cases like this, and transitioned to a male at age 15. To multiple reports on genetically male with XY chromosomes and anatomically female who were brought up as female and later transitioned to male, it is safe to conclude that gender identity is less about behavioral, cultural, or social circumstances or upbringing and more biological. While there are a number of genetic biochemical studies on gender identity, we don't fully understand the involvement of specific genes. However, it is likely that genes, which in turn code for proteins, enzymes, and hormones, etc., more than any other factor, play a role in transgender identity. Can some of these genes reside on X or Y chromosomes? Perhaps. In my opinion, looking for biological variables as arbiters of gender identity is not a great idea for society. So yeah, who knows? You know, I'm trying to remain somewhat self-aware here. You know, Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist, and I'm a manual laborer with a graphic design degree, you know what I mean? But um, yeah, and one more tweet here. Let's see. And this one's dated on uh, November of 2020. Yes, I know it's behind a paywall, but it's worth it. Superb article by Trevor Phillips on the oppressive nonsense that can flow from aggressive quote-unquote wokeism, e.g. demanding that employees should sign a statement that quote-unquote trans women are women. And then it shows a couple of people holding up signs. One of them has a Black Lives Matter sign. The other uh, has a sign that says white people must do more. And it's probably no secret that I lean left. It's probably been evident, you know, throughout this episode. But, you know, even I think, yeah, when people go too far with the political correctness stuff, it does start to feel a little creepy, a little culty, kind of like, uh, what's that old black and white movie? Is it Freaks or something? Where all the freaks are chanting, like, we will make you one of us goobble, gobble, goop, whatever it is. Is that where the Ramones got it? But, you know, as left-leaning as I am, I'm kind of uh, kind of a lone wolf. I'm very wary of uh, groupthink. Um, I intentionally don't, you know, belong to any organizations or anything like that. I value being a free thinker, and I don't like people telling me what I can or can't say or what I should or shouldn't say. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like... The embedded picture here in this tweet with uh, the girl holding a... I have no problem with someone holding a Black Lives Matter sign. Uh, that doesn't bother me at all. But I'm not getting into Black Lives Matter now. You know, as I've been saying, I'm trying to actually back away from politics a bit. Um, and the other girl holding the uh, white people must do more sign. I know they're talking about, you know, it's like a call to action. They're talking about activism, whatever. But I'm like, I work a day job. You know, I host a podcast. It's 1.41 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday night, technically a Monday morning. And uh, I have to get up for work at 7. I I I'm doing plenty. Back off, sister. 
But on that note, I guess I'll call this a wrap. Uh, as always, thanks for listening, everyone. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not on there very much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support what I do monetarily, maybe someday I can quit my damn day job. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help, you know, support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.